squeezing this. Great. Yen? Yeah, almost. Okay. Well, I'll show you my picture first, then I want to talk about it. Here's my picture that I printed off this morning. Pretty excited. Are you excited about my picture? Yeah? Do you know what it is? Uh, yeah. I'll show these guys first. Can you see it? Yeah, over the back. Yeah, you see it? Yep. All right. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you see trains like this around Auckland when you're driving around or you've been on a train like this? No. So what's different about this train? Is, can anyone tell me what is different about this one? Yes. Here you go. Yeah, it looks old. I don't know if it's got a military bit to it. Maybe it does. You might know more. This bit? That. That. Oh, do you think it's used for, like, carrying ammunition or something? Yeah, probably. So this, this is what we call a steam train. So back in the olden days, you had steam trains. And what was different about it, this was the engine, the, the locomotive, and it pulled the train. And this part here at the back was where you would put coal or sometimes oil. And the, the engine, there was a special name for it. It was a fire somebody, rather, who would shovel the coal. They'd put the coal into the engine and burn, produce steam, which drove the wheels. And then these are the wagons behind it, right? Okay, so this is my train I want to talk about. Now, I'm not going to talk about trains. I want to use this as a, an example of what I'm going to talk about in my sermon today because in the passage today... The Apostle Paul is telling us about the importance of good works, okay, good works. Now, the train. If we think about good works and how they belong in our lives, if you look at the engine, what does the engine do? Well, the engine is very important for this train, isn't it? Without the engine, would the train go anywhere? No, it wouldn't even go. It wouldn't just, it'd just sit there. The engine is what God does, isn't it? God is in Christ Jesus he saves us, saves us by grace. It's a free gift of salvation. So when Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, he died for our sins. God has done it all for us. But the coal, where this, we need this here for, for us to receive this, is like, it, this is like our faith. This is what Jesus has done. This is our faith in what Jesus has done. Our trust, we're trusting in him. So if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? What do you call someone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ to take away their sins? Does anyone know what you call that person? It sounds more complicated than it is. Does anyone want to guess? Yes? A Christian. Totally. That's right. You call someone a Christian who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins. And... What we're going to see in, the, in our sermon today is that the Apostle Paul in the Bible, the whole of the Bible says, when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins, just like this train which has the coal wagon here, then other things will follow. Okay? There will be good works, there will be worship, there will be joy, there will be peace that will follow on and it, and it follows along behind the train because the locomotive pulls it as we trust by faith. So if we trust in Jesus by faith, then our lives will show evidence of that. You will see that someone is a Christian. Okay? You'll see that someone's a Christian by what? They will do good works, the Bible talks about, and it's fruit of our faith. 
So this, this is what I'm going to be talking about. I want to encourage you and you think about your lives that you would trust firstly, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to take away your sins. And then, and then secondly, that you look to your life to do good works, to do good things, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we're all called to do, not just children, but also adults. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that just as you call us to yourself and we trust in you by faith, trusting in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross when he died on the cross for our sins and rose again, that as we trust in you, we would see the results in our lives. Just like this train has wagons that follow on behind the engine, that we would see the results. We would see fruit. There would be something that happens and so we pray for good works in our lives, that we would be a people who produce good works, that we would be a people who delight to bring forth profitable things and excellent things in our lives uh, through what you are doing in us. So, Lord God, would you work in us? I pray for the children here that firstly and foremostly they might be trusting in you, but also that they too, like us, would produce good works from their lives of faith in Christ, as we pray in his name. Amen. I want to invite you to turn with me to the uh, book of Titus, which is where we've been as a church for the last couple of months, and we're pretty much at the end of it, but um, Logan has uh, asked um, Carlo and myself to finish off with these last few verses, and so we are turning to chapter 3. Uh, today I'm going to focus on verse 8, but we'll read from the beginning to put it into our context. I'll read verses 1 um, to 11. This is God's word. Hear God's word, brothers and sisters. Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our times in malice and envy, hating one another and <clears throat> hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading of his word. Let us ask God to help us now as we open this word together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and Mighty God, we know that you have given us these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know that all scripture is breathed out by your spirit. That holy men of old spake as they were carried along by your spirit. Send, Lord God, that same spirit into our hearts and into our minds this morning to help us to see and understand and to uh, believe and to uh, obey what your word is saying. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you here this morning have heard of the Clapham sect? Yeah, one or two? Yep, the Clapham sect. I'm not introducing some new religion, don't worry. So the Clapham sect was a historical uh, phenomenon. They were sort of ran from the 1790s to the 1840s, mid-1800s in England. And they were named the Clapham sect, in case you're wondering, because they were centred on a church called Holy Trinity Church, which was in Clapham, South London. And the ministers there were Henry and then his son, John Venn. And they, uh, the Clapham sect, were a, a bunch of believers, many of whom were actually members of parliament, who became a real force for good, not only in England, but throughout, of course, the whole of the British Empire. Um, a couple of things that they are known for. One was through the, the ministers, through John Venn, was the setting up of the Church Missionary Society, CMS, But also, many of you will have heard of a a very famous member of that sect, uh, and they weren't really a sect, by the way. It was just the the name that people gave them, you know, the publics and the media gave them, was a man called William Wilberforce. And, of course, William Wilberforce was the driving force behind the, um, the legislation to ban the slave trade in the British Empire, which happened in 1833. But there is a a closer connection for us here in New Zealand and here in New Zealand this week in particular to the Clapham sect. And there was another man in that that group who was, his name was uh, James Stephen. James Stephen. And James Stephen was the undersecretary for the colonies and he worked alongside the minister there, uh, the, the minister of the parliamentary minister. And it was him that gave the instructions to Captain William Hobson, who was coming out to New Zealand in 1839-1840 to see the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. And it was actually James Stephen who suggested the wording through the colonial office as to how how that, that document should be put together. And, and so he had an influence on that. And, of course, it was uh, uh, through that whole movement another person, Henry Williams, who was a, uh, a member of the Church Missionary Society and a missionary up in the Bay of Islands, who was the one who translated the text of the Treaty of Waitangi from English into Māori. 
and, and which is, of course, today is something that we have and love it or loathe it, that is a result of the works of these Christian brothers. Why did they do this? Because they had been captured by the gospel and they believed that good things should be done throughout the British Empire and throughout society and that people should, who are made in God's image should be, uh, image should be protected and uh, should be cared for. So today I, I tell you that story because I want to talk about this topic of, of good works and uh, see how it relates to us today. See, good works, when we think about them, can be either intimidating or confusing. Um, I've just told you a story of these people like William Wilberforce who did lots of good works. And so when I say, today I'm going to talk about brothers and sisters, about us doing good works, you may be immediately feeling inadequate and overwhelmed and thinking to yourself, well, I ain't no William Wilberforce or I ain't no James Stevens or, or I ain't an amazing missionary like Henry Williams who worked tirelessly in preaching the gospel here in New Zealand. And this is way above my kind of pay grade, so to speak. Um, that's a response, and, and I, I share that response myself. It's something we all feel inadequate about, don't we, when you look at our lives and we think about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Are we producing good works? Well, maybe you uh, have another reaction, which is you're feeling a little bit suspicious of good works. You're saying, Jeff, you know, you're taking us into the realm of Mother Teresa and all that wonky theology over there, which is... Are you going to start promoting good works as this is what we as Christians should be all about? And therefore we, you know, like social gospel Christians, you know, those churches that just emphasize doing stuff and running soup kitchens and so on. And nobody even believes the Bible anymore. And, and those are quite real um, struggles and, and responses that we can have as to this, this uh, subject here. Well, if you look at verse 8, what does the text say? <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says to Titus, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, what is going on here? Well, he begins the verse by saying, the saying is trustworthy. Now, what is he talking about? Almost everyone agrees that what Paul is referring to when he says the saying is trustworthy is what precedes it, verses 4 to 7. And the saying is a gospel saying. Some people suggest that, in fact, Paul is, is referring back to like an early Christian gospel song that would have been sung and possibly chanted in the, in the early Christian community. And at those verses 4 to 7, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness and so on. So, so what Paul is doing here is he's looking back, he's saying, hey, these are good things. That's a, that's a good saying. This is gospel truth. This is, this is something, this is a, a gospel reality that you and I need to hold on. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that he has poured out his spirit upon us, who not only has regenerated us, but also indwells us so that we may live for his glory. He's saying these things are true. And knowing these, these things, if we know these things, if, we, if you're a Christian and you embrace that reality, you say, yes, this is me. 
I believe this. This is true of my life. I have been transformed by the Spirit of God. I am trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if, if this is a faithful saying that you accept, then what will happen in your life? What is the result? There is a flow-on effect. This is the process by which Jesus Christ brings us to salvation, by which God works salvation in us. Now, what does that do? You might say process and product or action and, and, and fruit. What is the fruit of that? And so he says, having been justified by God's grace, then what will your life and my life look like? And that is where the rest of verse comes in. I want you to insist on these things. These are things that he says that we want the church to, to follow and, and to be leaders in so that those who have believed in God, verses 4 to 7, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so the, the thrust of what I want to talk about here from this passage this morning is that we need to be a church that stresses the gospel in order to embrace good works. And I think if we put verse 9 into it, which I'll pick up on tonight, which is to avoid unprofitable things like quarrels and, and controversies about unimportant things. And so Paul is telling Titus that he should insist on these things. So, that, so insist on the gospel, but also insist on the believers putting into place, following through on the gospel, uh, put, putting, you might say, uh, you know, hands and feet to what we believe, you know, putting, putting our words into action, or you know what we say, practicing what we preach. So that it doesn't just remain in the realm of theory and ideas and, and good theology. I love good theology, but we, he says, you, it has to be seen. You have to be able to see the evidence that what you are saying with your mouth is, has penetrated into your heart. And what he's talking about here is that the fruit of this is good works. You notice he contrasts the good works. They are, at the end of the verse, he says, these things are excellent and profitable, as opposed, if you go to the end of verse 9, which are things which are unprofitable and worthless, you know, the sort of endless speculations and arguments and quarrels. But I think it's worth us also, because we're sort of zeroing in on this idea of good works, just to step back a bit and say, you know, where do good works even come from? Is this even a biblical idea? Is this something God wants? Or is this, is this something that has maybe crept into the church and, and really has no place in good reformed theology? I think if we want to say, okay, where did, the, where did the idea of good works, where does that come from? If you go back, of course, right to the beginning, you go to God himself, and if you, the book of Genesis tells us that God was the one who, you might say, initiated good works. Genesis, in, in the Genesis story, you have God on each day of creation, what does he do? He looks at what he has created and metaphorically, he says, when, when he looks at what he's made, he says, it is good. And so when God gets to the end of six days, what does he say? It is very good. And so straight away in the book of Genesis, and in and, and the beginning of the whole cosmos, we have God himself working. We know that God is working because on the seventh day, what does God do? He does the opposite of work. He rests from his work. And so God is the one who initiates 
th- this idea of work. God is the, you might say, the, the first one who does good works. Psalm 8 verse, uh, verse 3 says that the, the heavens and, the, and the, the stars and all of these things are the work of your fingers, O Lord. But when we bring it even closer to home, uh, the Apostle Paul says that Christians, if you're a Christian today, you're a work of God. And that we're told, Paul tells us in Philippians that God is working in us. Remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that God will finish that work, that work that he has begun in you. God will bring that work to completion. And that also God is at work in us. He says, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so God is the one who initiates the work. God is the one who you might say is the first worker. And so we as Christians are called to do works. Jesus said to his disciples, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So this is an expectation of us as Christians, um, that, that we would do good works. Why? Because good works count for eternity. Good works really do matter. Let me, let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2, verse six, verses 6 and 8. Romans chapter 2. God is the one who, begin, who began good works. We are called to do good works, and good works count for eternity. Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking about God's righteous judgment. He talks about the wrath, verse 5, when God's wrath, uh, God's sorry, righteous judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath, which is the day of judgment. And then he goes on and says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So I'm reading that passage there to remind us that works, good works is not something that we might think or see as being an optional extra, something that we can do if we want to, but if we don't feel like doing, oh, let's not bother. Jesus says, let your light shine so that Others will see your good works. And the Apostle Paul says, your good works, the works that you do, are going to be evaluated on the day of judgment. And I'll come back to that idea, but I'll just let that one sit for a minute. We'll come back and tidy that idea up in a moment. But it's important. They count for eternity. In fact, James says that, in fact, works show our faith. He says, you know, people talk about, I will show you my faith this way and that way. But he says... I will show you my faith by my works. In fact, James is so bold as to say, faith without works is a dead faith. It's not a living faith. It's not a genuine faith. If we have faith, then there will be work. There will be evidence of that in your life and in my life. 
James talks about, the kinds of works he talks about, caring for widows and orphans and, and living godly lives and showing mercy and so on. But maybe you're sitting there and you're going, <clears throat> so Jeff, you read Romans chapter 2. Are you suggesting somehow that what I do, my good works, somehow merit eternal life? Because that seems to be kind of what Paul may possibly be saying in, in Romans chapter 2. Are you, are you saying that, that we get merit, that we get brownie points, that we get credit with God, that God somehow justifies us on the basis of our works? Well, Scripture, of course, we know that it, it never supports that. And if you would have heard Logan preaching on the verses 3 through 5, where, which really clearly emphasize that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And that not only by the works of the law, but no, no good works in and of themselves will ever merit uh, a salvation from God. And so in other words, our, our good works add nothing to your or my innocence or guilt before God. Turn with me to another passage. I really want to show you this one. I think this is just as important. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 10, just the context here. The Apostle Paul is talking about his ministry, and he's talking about the fact that he has been, you know, he's been the sort of church planter extraordinaire. He's gone throughout the Roman Empire, visiting new places, preaching the gospel. Believers have come together. And then he leaves in place people like Titus and Timothy, who, he says to Titus, appoint elders to establish the church, to build up the church, to lead now this new body of believers in worship and mission. And he explains this, but he, he, notice how he talks about it. He says in verse 10 of 1 um, Corinthians chapter 3, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, meaning the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I thought it was important to read that passage there because while the scriptures insist and, and, and um, you know, teach the importance of good works and insist that good works will be seen in your life and my life as believers if God has truly done a regenerating work in our hearts, the scriptures also say, though, that that's not how you and I are saved. Notice when Paul talks about the work of these builders who come into the church after him and, and do this work, he says, actually, they may be wood, hay, and stubble, and it gets burned up in the fire, but he says they will be saved. They don't lose their salvation, even though their work doesn't last. It, 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 it goes up in a puff of smoke, you might say. Whereas others, their work lasts, gold and silver, and of course they receive a reward. But it doesn't 
change their status before God. So good works do not change your status before God. They do not um, give you salvation or add to your salvation or bring you closer to salvation in any way. Sometimes we think like that, don't we, as Christians? You think, hey, the preacher's up the front. He's telling me I need to believe in Jesus like every good preacher should do. What can I do in order to get myself maybe a little bit closer, you know, maybe a step up closer to the cross? Maybe there's some good stuff I can do. Maybe I can mow my neighbor's lawn. You know, maybe I can, I don't know, comb my hair before church or whatever it is that you think you might do before coming. And you think that that's just going to get you that little bit closer. And the scripture is saying, no, it, it, it's, it's faith alone. And, and it's only through, there's only through one work, which is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ. Our works had nothing, but they are important. Now, maybe there's another question too. So some amongst you may be good Calvinists, or you could be just a Calvinist like me, but you may be good Calvinists, and you know that according to the canons of Dort, the canons of Dort said that our... Um, total depravity, right? T of the tulip, right? Total depravity. What does that mean? It means that we have sinned. We've fallen with Adam and that every part of our lives has been tainted by sin. Our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's no part of us that hasn't been affected by sin. doesn't mean you're as evil as you could possibly be. There's still, you know, sort of bad things that people do and super bad things. But it means, though, that every part of us, so that we are unable and in and of ourselves to do anything that would merit God's favor and, and, and his saving grace. Total depravity. And you may be familiar with the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, that nothing, there is no good thing in me that dwells. There is no, in me, nothing good dwells. And so you may be saying, Jeff, does, is it even possible for me to do a good work? Can I do anything good? Surely, you know, I know my heart. Yeah, I trust in Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe, but I know my heart. Yet, you know, even when I might go and, you know, get the, my neighbor's uh, mail in for them, or I might offer to take someone to the supermarket. I'm, I'm kind of looking for someone to affirm me, you know, to say, oh, you're such a kind person of driving Auntie Dot to the supermarket, and, and you didn't have to do that. And I, I know my heart that even, you know, the good things that I do, sometimes I do them for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives. Can I even do anything that's really good? Well, that passage where Paul says, nothing good dwells in me, he is actually saying, in my flesh no good thing dwells. Meaning, in him outside of Jesus Christ, without grace, without the, the application by the Holy Spirit of the finished work of Christ to his life, yes, there is no good thing. Isaiah 64, what is it? All of our righteousnesses are like what? Filthy rags in God's sight. Why? Because without the work of the Holy Spirit, without us being in Jesus Christ, yes, our, all of our deeds, even our good things that we would strive to do, they, um, they amount to nothing. Uh, they only deserve God's wrath and curse. And so when we, when we understand that, that but when, when we understand what Paul is teaching here, 
Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared and he saved us and he's washed us by regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus, that something different has occurred. The Spirit of God is at work in your life. The Holy Spirit has changed your heart. He has applied what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so therefore, Paul can say, do good works. Not because you're good in and of yourself, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And your works are accepted before him. And so when the psalmist says, I have no good apart from you, yes, he's true. Apart from the Lord, I have no good. But in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, we are called to do good works. Let your light shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So our good works, what's the summary? Yes, God calls us to do good works because God himself does good works. But our works are not meritorious, meaning they don't earn God's favor. They don't take away our sin in any way, but rather they are an outworking of the Spirit of God in your life and in my heart and my life, your life and my life, your heart and in my heart, as the Holy Spirit applies salvation to you and I. It's a proof that we are walking in step with the Spirit. I don't know if many of you are aware, but the founding document of our church and indeed of our denomination called the Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter on good works. Did many of you know that? It's chapter 16. It might be worth you going and reading it. Chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, it talks about good works. It says that good works are those that are defined by Scripture. So it's not up to us to decide what are good works and what are not, but Scripture itself defines it. It talks about good works as being a fruit of saving faith, which is what I've just been talking about. And it talks about the fact that good works strengthen our faith. In other words, when it's, it's a evidence that, and we can see it ourselves, and we can see in ourselves that God is doing something. Now, I know that's a difficult thing, because we can deceive ourselves, can't we? We can inflate our understanding of what we're doing. But nevertheless, they say that when you see good works in your life, when you see, this is a fruit of what God is doing in you. They bless others, and they glorify God. Now, here's the difficult part. Paul says, do good works. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. We all want to do excellent and profitable things. The tricky part is now maybe you're saying, okay, Jeff, where's the list? Where's the list of good things that I can do? And where's the list of good things that I, well, maybe bad things I shouldn't do? And I wouldn't be so foolish as to try and give a list of what I think are good works. Because I know that it would offend our consciences if I was to do that. And I would be stepping beyond the bounds of those examples that scripture itself gives. We know that good works are those things that bless others in the church in particular, but in society in general. Uh, we know that good works are to bring justice to the orphan and the widow, so areas of showing justice for others. 
of showing mercy to those in need, to feeding those who are hungry and housing those who, who are, are homeless. Its good works involve discipling and encouraging and teaching others. Good works involve evangelism, sharing our faith, and also worship, coming together both uh, as a church, but also coming together as a family and worshipping God as individuals. What I'd rather do, though, is just as we close, is focus on the heart. Because I think that this is what the Apostle Paul is really driving at here. Looking back at those trustworthy things, looking back at the gospel truth, what is it that should happen? What, is it, what does he want to see occurring And through Titus and through the church in Crete, he's wanting to see the hearts of God's people captured by the gospel. And as they're captured by the gospel, there is a change that occurs. And it's a change of attitude. I'm often reminded of these words in in Acts chapter 10. And you can read them in, in verse 38 where this is Apostle Peter preaching to the Gentiles, right? He's, he's preaching the gospel to a people who are outside of the community of faith, you might say, and they've maybe just heard this name Jesus and they wonder what it's all about. He says these words, God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he, that is Jesus, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, what I find striking about that is how, how Peter explains the gospel to these Gentile hearers. Yes, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he talks about Jesus going and defeating the works of the devil and, and breaking down the strongholds of Satan and, and, and ushering in a whole new order, a whole new kingdom rule. But he, he talks about the way that Jesus was this one who went about doing good. Jesus was someone you could see. There was something about him. There was, there was, his life was, was a evidence and a, and a fruit of the power of the gospel in and of itself. And so I think that as believers today, this is where we need to be looking. This is where we need to be taking our minds, not trying to come up with a list of good works, but to look at our hearts. Are our hearts captured by what we read, what Peter says about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we want to be like him? Do we want to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we take him as our example? You know, Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? And, and he says even more about the good works. What does he say about them? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's quite a profound statement, isn't it? We're God's workmanship. God has done something in us. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus, regenerated by the Holy Spirit who has applied Christ's finished work to us for the purpose of good works. And these are good works that God himself has ordained, has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is something that God has given careful attention to, brothers and sisters. It's not just a random, like, well, if I find something to do, you know, maybe I'll do it if I want to. But it's rather that something God calls us. If you're a Christian today, God has called you to a path of good works. And God has 
purposefully put you in your situation in life and with the people that you have around you in the context in which he has placed you in order to fulfill those good works that he has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And so we need to understand this rather with our hearts, rather rather than with our minds, but more with our hearts, that this is something that we need to feel the conviction about. And we need to come to it with a sense of, of, of generosity and, 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 and love. First Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Timothy, it's only a couple of page over, pages over, why don't you go back there with me. First Timothy chapter 6 and verses 17 and 18, I'm almost done. This is Paul giving final instructions, instructions to Timothy. He says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure, and that's taking us back to the 1 Corinthians idea, for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice, notice the way that the Apostle Paul approaches it with the church here. He doesn't come in with a, you know, a, a sort of a harsh command and telling those who are rich, you have to do this and you have to give away this much and, 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 and so on. He says, tell them not to be haughty, proud, arrogant, thinking they're better somehow. Oh, well, look at, you know, look at my house, look at my car, look at my job, therefore I must be better than everyone else. No. He's saying there has to be an attitude of humility and, and there has to be a right focus in their lives of eternal hope. Their hopes are not on un- the uncertainty of riches, like, well, I'm glad I've got all this money in the bank because now my life is sussed, you know, like everything will be fine. As we know, that all works out for us, you know, like as soon as we get financially secure, everything is just great, not. And he says not to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides us. So it's an attitude, isn't it? It's a perspective on life. And he says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be what? Generous and ready to share. That's, this, is, this is sort of heart stuff, isn't it? It's something we can all do. No matter how much you have, you can be generous. If you've got five chips, you can give someone one chip. We can give them three chips. You know, if you've got a bag of chips, you can, or bags of chips, you can give them one of the bags. It, it, it's, it's about a heart attitude, isn't it? And Paul, in First Timothy, he talks about the kinds of good works where he talks about widows and their hospitality and caring for the needs of the sick and, and the uh, afflicted. Just want to finally say that maybe you're saying, well, if Jeff, that's all very good. Yes, you've said, Paul is saying, need to do good works because of the gospel. And you've said that it's because of God. God is one who works in us and he calls us to do good works and yes i know that my good works are not going to get me to heaven but you've also said they are still good works because the holy spirit is makes us able to do those good works that's all fair and dandy and you're saying it's about a hard attitude how do i how do i stir that up within myself 
answer is painfully obvious. I'm almost embarrassed to sort of give you the answer because you all know this answer. It's like a Jesus answer. But if you, if you think of that passage like Paul gives um, in, in second, second Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is, this is verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, what is he saying? That God has given us a scripture. It's been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It teaches us about God. It corrects us that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, it comes back to our understanding of the gospel. And where do we understand the gospel, brothers and sisters? It's in the scriptures itself. It's not, you're not going to find it anywhere else. Uh, you're not going to find it um, in you know, reading self-help books on how to do lots of good works or how to be a good worker. They may be helpful, but ultimately it's scripture itself. Why is it scripture? Because it's scripture that takes us back to those faithful things, those faithful sayings, trustworthy sayings. They tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And if, you, if your life has been changed by the gospel and you understand and you are seeking to grow in your understanding of what that means, then your life will also reflect that. You will see good works in your life as God is working out his good purposes in you. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we sit before you here this day and we look at our lives and we are very much aware uh, with the Apostle Paul that in us by nature there is no good thing. Uh, we know that even our good works are filthy rags in your sight. And yet we know that as we have believed the gospel, as we have entrusted ourselves to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and his finished work, that you, Lord God, are working in us. And as you work in us, our lives will show this. There will be evidence in the works that we do. And so, Lord God, help us. Today, maybe we are feeling uncertain about our ability to do good works. Maybe we think there is nothing we have to offer. Lord, I pray that you would show us, show us, first of all, Christ and what he did, and that we would seek to follow him. Lord, maybe we just feel really indifferent about this, and we, we, didn't really, we don't really care about good works. We're not really interested. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts as we meditate on your word, that as we see in, in this passage we just read at the end, that the Apostle Paul says your scriptures, as they reveal Christ to us, they are able to stir up within us a desire for good works. 
And so, Lord, I, I thank you for your people here today. Thank you for the good works that your people are doing. Thank you that we abound in good works, that this church sees so many good works taking place. And I pray that you would increase the good works among us, that these would bring glory and honor, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, that others may see our good works and give glory and honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.